It's the Wolfpack Live at Frankie's Eastside Gourmet and Italian Restaurant in Farmingdale, New York, featuring Big Sexy Kevin Nash, the bad guys Scott Hall, and the Bronco Buster himself, X-Pac Sean Waltman. VIP tickets are on sale Saturday, September 26th for amazing VIP packages starting at $75. Call 516-756-2753. Tell them the two-man power trip of wrestling sent you by using the code POWERTRIPNWO for a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It's Frankie's Eastside Gourmet, an Italian restaurant in Farmingdale, New York. 516-756-2753. It's going to be an event that's just too sweet. You might wind up in a body bag. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Rigg. Hey, man, what's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie, Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you today and powered by Bombas. Bombas is a mind-blowing, athletic, leisure sock with a mission to help those in need. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime John Paz. And John, today on the show, we have a guy I know is very close to your association with being a wrestling fan, and that is the former ring announcer for WCW, David Penzer. Now, John, WCW has had its fair share of memorable ring announcers, whether you go with Gary Michael Capetta, or if you go for the big match feel and you think of Michael Buffer and the Let's Get Ready to Rumble. But I'm going to ask you, what makes David Penzer so identifiable with WCW, quite possibly even more than a Gary Michael Capetta or a uh, Michael Buffer, and maybe even being the Howard Finkel of WCW. Yes, Chad. One of my favorite guests, the voice of WCW, David Penzer. Awesome to have him on. Awesome to you know, relive some of the WCW days, because as you know, I'm a huge, huge WCW mark from back in the day. Just just my favorite league, really. Just I just love the talent. I love the matches. I just... Everything about it, I know a lot of things went downhill for WCW and a lot of mistakes and a lot of things that they didn't do right. But, you know, all in all, I just, looking back, love WCW. I love the NWO. It saved the business. I mean, obviously, there were some backstage issues and some backstage politics, but it really saved the business. Now, back to David Penzer. It's funny because he is so identifiable with WCW. I mean, his voice is the voice of WCW, like I said. And he just, you know, just he just WCW to the core. And I think that's a good thing. And, and you know, it's funny because 
Why is he the voice of WWE? Think about it. He was on every single Monday Nitro, and we talk about it in the interview. He's the only guy ever to be on every single Monday Nitro, and whether you realize it or not, it's kind of one of those funny little trivia tidbits. And I think it's great to you know be able to say that, put that on the old resume. Uh, you know, you're part of every WWE Monday Nitro from the beginning all the way until the end. So it's pretty cool, pretty great. And I kind of identify him more with WCW, even more than uh, Gary Michael Capetta, or you know, more than a lot of the other guys as the voice of WCW, just because of the longevity that he had, and you were hearing him every Monday night, and even um, when WCW Thunder was going on, you mean you were hearing him on Thunder, so so recognizable, so identifiable with WCW. I mean, he he was you know, he says Howard Finkel's the best, but you almost want to say he was the Howard Finkel of WCW. You know, which is obviously a high, high praise and high compliment to Mr. David Penzer. Oh, yeah. Extreme high praise, especially when you think about the impact Howard Finkel has made, not only just on, you know, the announcing side of the wrestling business, but what he's done for the WWE. But I don't really think people knew the extent of the behind the scenes duties that David Penzer had at the time with WCW. And we actually really surprised as I was. You know, and I will say this too, actually, before we even continue, this was a one-on-one that you had with David Penzer. Were you surprised to learn so much about his backstage duties at WCW? That's another great thing when we get to interview these guys. I mean, you really don't know, the, you know, the whole truth of it. I'm a huge fan. I mean, I mean, I've been a fan forever. You've been a fan forever. And we didn't even realize that David Penzer had so many backstage duties in WCW. Producer, uh, get this, get that. He's doing this, doing that. He's getting talent. He's organizing interviews. He's getting the guys ready. He's telling Booker T, you know, what he needs to be doing and and, and what he needs to wear and, and what he needs to bring to Monday Nitro and stuff like that. So, I mean, he's in the creative mix, if you will. He's uh, getting people ready for interviews. He's doing interviews. He's being the announcer. He's being a producer. I mean, he had so many roles in WCW, and it's funny because you look back and you, you know, you're watching and you have no idea that these guys do other things. And like he mentioned with Tony Schiavone, Tony Schiavone had so many hats and so many duties that he was doing as well. So with David Penzer, no, I I had no idea, and and like I consider myself a big fan, especially of WCW, and I had no idea that he had that many jobs and was doing that many different things, and how much of a key role he played within WCW, and how much he really meant to WCW from uh, you know when he started in you know the mid '90s to the end of WCW in 2001. So that's another great thing to you know, hang your hat on. It's like, man, I I did this, and I worked my way all the way up through this company, and I had so many different roles. And I was really an important key cog in the WCW wheel. Yeah, I think we've all come to realize whether it is in wrestling or if it's in you know any other kind of form of entertainment or a show being put together, you need that veritable jack of all trades who's able to wear multiple hats and do a lot of different things. Whether it's you know helping coordinate an interview or helping get talent where they need to be, and that is really awesome to hear about how David Penzer did such a big job in helping coordinate such things for WCW. But why don't we fast forward a little bit to when he did join TNA Wrestling. And of course, it wasn't in the you know initial run of TNA. It was a little bit further down the road. Jeremy Borash handled a lot of the main announcing duties, but they bring in David Penzer at one point. And do you feel like it gave him more of an authentic feel having a seasoned ring announcer who's been on television, who's been on virtually every single WCW television show for, gosh, 
with something that seemed like, you know, five, six, seven years, uh, did it up the value for TNA to have a guy like David Penzer in that role, having that sound that's so identifiable with professional wrestling, you know, with WCW, if you want to call it Southern wrestling at the time, uh, non WWE wrestling. Um, but yeah, you know, is it David Penzer giving it that authentic, you know, big time show feel? You know what, with TNA, they tried to bring in Penzer, and he definitely has a more authentic sound to ring announcing. I mean, he has one of the greatest ring announcing voices I've ever heard. I mean, you, you throw him up there with uh, Gary Michael Capetta, who was great, uh, Howard Finkel was great, and then, you you know, and it kind of falls off from there. I mean, no offense to uh, Jeremy Borash and the lovely, beautiful Christy Hemi, but no offense to them. Of course, they just don't do it for me as far as the, uh, the ring announcing goes, and I just think that they're kind of just there while David Penzer and those other guys that I mentioned add something to it. And I think TNA was trying to add something to the announcing, but it didn't quite uh, work out the way, you know, they wanted to or, or maybe us as the fans wanted to. But that's just typical with TNA because it seems to happen with them all the time where, uh, you know, they want for something and they don't really execute properly. And if you were to execute ring, you know, ring announcing properly, David Pender is your guy. I mean, you just got to love the voice, and he, you know, he's awesome, and he was one of the best. And TNA, you know, with a lot of things they tried, but ultimately didn't connect, and um, Pender ended up leaving TNA. John, before we throw into the interview with David Penzer, why don't you hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business, and why don't you tell him a little bit more about Bombas? Yes, Bombas is back, baby. Bombas is the best in the business. Bombas, the greatest sock in the history of socks. Please check out Bombas on our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And in the upper left-hand corner, you will see the Bombas link. Please do all your shock, excuse me, sock shopping through us, through Bombas. And that's Bombas, the greatest sock of all time. Remember, every time you buy a pair of Bombas, one pair will be donated to the homeless. So you are helping as well as getting the greatest stock in their history of socks. Now on to some TMPT of a wrestling business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Also, check out the feed with prior interviews with good old JR, Jim Ross, Harley Race, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat, the late great Dusty Rhodes, WB's Kane, Dean Ambrose, and many, many more. Also, please check us out on the I-95 Sports Network. We're live and in color with best of episodes every Monday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. So please check us out on the I-95 Sports Network. Also, follow us on Twitter at WrestlingPalin, at Two Man Power Trip. And don't forget to book Kevin Fertig, a.k.a. Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai. If you want to do that, please go to bookings at tmptofwrestling.com that is email bookings at tmptofwrestling.com to book Kevin Thorne aka Mordecai aka Kevin Fertig now on to a great great interview we did with the legend himself the voice of WCW one of the greatest ring announcers of all time folks this is David Penzer yeah, yeah. DJ Rand all up in your area Metro style you know how we Gentlemen, this is David Penzer getting ready for the mayhem of World Championship Wrestling. On the line today, we have the former voice of WCW, a man who was there for 
every single Monday Nitro. And one of the best announcers of all time, he is Dave Penzer. Welcome to Two Man Empowered Trip of Wrestling. Hello, David. How are you doing today? Hey, how's it going? Doing very good. Now, uh, as mentioned, you were the voice of WCW for a very long time. And, uh, you know, you had a, a long and illustrious announcing career. But one thing I'm very, very curious of. How did you actually get into the wrestling business? I've told the story a couple of times lately, but I'll give you the short version. Um, I was a huge wrestling fan growing up uh, in South Florida, watching championship wrestling from Florida. And um, there was when uh, WWE got WWF at the time got big uh, in the late mid '80s. There was a lot of promotions that you know tried to start, and one of them was a promotion that sold penny stocks on the penny stock market to. Um, to raise money. It was called Global Wrestling Alliance, and it was based out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It was run by uh, Professor Boris Malenko, Dean and Joe's dad, um, and Bob Roop, who was a booker and uh, uh, shooter-type wrestler in Florida and San Francisco and other places. And um, there's a local guy named Dr. Red Roberts. He was an indie wrestler. He did a psychologist gimmick where he he was a psychologist, and he would uh, evaluate the uh, babyface wrestlers. But uh, in real life, he was a legit psychologist and still is actually in Fort Lauderdale. And my dad also still is and was a legit psychologist in Fort, in Fort Lauderdale, although he wasn't a wrestler, or else that would have been a lot easier. But um, so my dad had a center where he hired a lot of different uh, psychological counselors, and one of them was best friends or very good friends with Dr. Red Roberts. His real name was Michael Brandon. And um, so my dad, had, you know, I had done some DJing on the high school radio station and doing weddings and sweet 16s and stuff and so my um my father spoke to his counselor who spoke to red roberts and they invited me over to the diplomat hotel where they were doing a tv taping ox baker uh adrian street uh a lot of a lot of a lot of big names at the time and um they had a ring announcer but i kind of hung around and they didn't let me go in the locker room but um uh, I got to kind of meet all the guys were in, in the what they would call now the gorilla position area, and uh, and then they had some other TV tapings and I helped them out running guys for interviews and stuff and then they had a house show in Palatka, Florida, 1987, and they asked me to do it. It was the first time I was in a locker room. Didn't know what to expect. You know, you're sort of smart to the business, but you didn't know if the good guys and the bad guys were really good friends. If they just you know didn't hang out to you, you just never knew. It, like you do today, because it was so closed and so quiet. And now, you know, it's everybody knows what it is. But back then, it's hard to imagine, but really you didn't. And, you know, as an intelligent 20-year, 21-year-old guy, uh, but you still didn't really know because it was so closed. But uh, it turned out everybody is, you know, that it, we all know what it is. And um, and it was a really cool experience, and I was really nervous, but I did a good job. And I worked with them. I promoted some in, uh, fundraiser shows for them. I did some ring announcing. Uh, later, when the promotion closed, me and Bob Roop bought the ring and promoted indie shows down in that area. So, uh, Bob, and, and that's sort of how I got in the business. Now, obviously, when we were talking about championship wrestling in Florida, at first we, we mentioned that, and you can't really talk about that without talking about the late, great Dusty Rhodes, who I know that you know you were obviously close with at one point in time. But what are your memories of Dusty? Well, as as a kid growing up, Dusty Rhodes was a hero of mine. You know, Dusty Rhodes was bigger than it's kind of it's, you know all this is kind of hard to imagine in today's internet. Everybody knows everything, uh, Twitter world. But you know, 
Dusty Rhodes was a bigger star in the state of Florida than the governor at the time, than the football players, than, I mean, he was the biggest star in the state of Florida. And, and even if you weren't a wrestling fan back then, you knew who Dusty Rhodes was. And, you know, he just had, you know, everybody saw what he had. But, you know, back this is back in his prime when he, you know, made that baby face turn and, turn and, and you know, they were doing this new innovative booking in Florida with these unique angles and huge baby, huge heels to bring in to feed the Dusty. And, um, you know, it was a really fun time. And, and, you know, like I said, you know, they had wrestling on Wednesday nights at the Miami Beach Convention Center, and that held about 5,000 people, and that would sell out for the big cards and come pretty darn close for the rest. But then down where I lived in Fort Lauderdale, there was a little old National Guard armory that uh, – that, uh, Hold. I, I I was just I just reached out to some people. I was I'm, I was curious how much it helped. To my if I had to guess, I'd probably say six seven hundred people. And there were only four matches on the shows most of the time because they split the 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 night with Tallahassee. So it, you would get the A team in Tallahassee because it's a bigger arena, and you get a small little B squad in um in Fort Lauderdale at the National Guard Armory. No air conditioning uh, year round, but um four times a year Dusty Rhodes would come. And it would be five or six matches. It'd be the big extravaganza show of the season. And they would announce at, at uh, inter- before intermission that Dusty Rhodes was going to be there next week or in two weeks. And legit, I, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but this is f- small little South Fort-, Fort Lauderdale where Dusty Rhodes was coming 40 minutes away uh, to the National Guard Armory. So it wasn't all that rare to be able to see him, but just to see him up close and personal like that, it would sell out by the time inter- intermission was halfway done. I mean, people would buy every ticket they could and, you know, bring their friends and their, their kids. And so, yeah, he was, a, he was a huge part of my, my childhood and, and my teenage years. And, you know, then to be able to get to work with him and for him was an absolute honor. And, you know, out of all the wrestlers that, and friends that we've lost in this crazy business, Dusty really hit me the hardest. And uh, still, you know, I watch the interviews that are on YouTube and I can't believe that He's uh, that he's gone. He'll never be forgotten. Yeah, it's crazy. Oddly enough, uh, we actually had his, his final interview ever. He was actually promoting the uh, the Armory, the Hall of Fame down there in Florida, and uh, it was quite an honor to be able to get on, get him on. And he, you know, unfortunately passed only a few days later. So it just was. Uh, it made it even more shocking for you know us up on the show. We were just um, we couldn't believe it. Yeah. Well. Um... That that was the day that we, you know, because I was at that 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 gig, and it's right down the street from my house, and uh, you know, it was unique because not only was it one of the biggest gathering of Florida legends, it probably was the biggest gathering of Florida legends ever, but um, it it was the the we had gotten the news earlier in the day. I was sitting at my desk in my office at home, and my wife called me and said, "Are you on the internet?" And I said, "Yeah, why?" And she said, "I think I just saw that Dusty Rhodes died," and I was in a state of shock. I googled it and. Sure enough, and um, you know, then we had to. I said, I said "How are we going to go do this this fundraiser with all these people that you know that Dusty lo- knew and and loved him, and you know, to see J.J. Dillon in tears, and to see Terry, Terry Funk and Dory Funk and J.J. Dillon and all these legends, Bugsy McGraw sitting there before the show telling Dusty stories. It was, you know, I I, I sort of think things happen for a reason, and even though it was so so tragic to lose him. So early, you know, in life, you know, because uh, he was still a young guy in, in this generational, you know, uh, you know, of, of people living a long time. But uh, I, I kind of think that maybe, 
you know, it was it happened that day because you know somebody wanted all his friends to be in the same place or a lot of them. So uh, and then I went to his funeral and um, you know Dusty was a great guy. I moved not to jump ahead, but I moved down to Tampa with the uh, XWF uh, in 2001, beginning of 2002. But I had my family down to tell them that we were moving here. I had two young kids and a wife. And I was commuting back and forth from Atlanta to um, just a quick dusty story. That's why I'm, I'm telling. I was um, commuting to Tampa, and um, we brought my wife and my kids and my parents and my 90-something-year-old grandmother at the time and my brother and my sister down here for Thanksgiving. They all traveled to be together because they lived in South Florida. And my, we lived at the time in Atlanta. And um, so Dusty Rhodes was having a big family gathering for Thanksgiving uh in uh, his house on the beach. Uh, it's actually Jerry Sag's house. Jerry Sags was his brother-in-law, but um, they both had a piece of it at the time. And um, so Dusty heard that I was going to be, uh, you know, not at home for Thanksgiving. And he invited me, you know, to come over through Jerry Sags, who was working for the XWF. And, you know, I called him up and I said, Dusty, you know, I really appreciate, uh, you know, that you invited me, but I got my mother, my father, my grandmother, my brother, my sister, my family, it's too much. And he, he said, I'll never forget it. And my wife was the one who reminded me when he passed. He said, nobody I know spends Thanksgiving in a hotel. Hmm. So he demanded wow. that I come bring my entire family. Uh, we had a blast. I mean, so, uh, so you know, Jerry Sags was there and, you know, Brian Nobbs and their, all their families and uh it was just a great time, and you know, I had I had forgotten it because you get old and you you know your memory goes. But you know, as soon as my wife mentioned it, I, I I was like, oh my god, I forgot that. So, you know, cool story. Here's this guy who's the, um, you know, one of the most well-known personalities in the state of Florida. You know, known all over the world, and you know, this little ring announcer. He you know doesn't want him him and his family to spend Thanksgiving in a, a restaurant or the hotel. So, uh, what a uh, what a good guy, and uh, he will be missed. Yes, yes, and that's an amazing, amazing story. And it's funny, he kept calling uh, me and my uh, my tag team partner. He kept calling us wrestling historians, in which we we you know we were laughing because everyone usually calls us Mark. So it was just so <laughs> funny, like wow, like Dusty Rhodes. Oh my God, he's calling us. You know, everyone else is wrong. He's right. So he just he, he makes you he makes you feel good. There's no doubt about it. Even us who, who you know we barely knew him. You know, he made yeah. us feel good. That's just the well, kind of I guy think he's. Was. I think, you know, I think he's changed and a lot of the people in this business have changed. You know, when I was first getting in the business, you know, if you were a mark, you were, you know, that was a bad term, you know, and, and I'm a mark now and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. And I was, I've always been a mark, you know, anybody who's a wrestling fan who, who breathes it is a mark and, and I'm a mark for fantasy football. I'm a mark for the NFL. I'm a mark for the Tampa Bay Rays who just hit another home run. Thank God they're finally going to win a game, I think. And, um, and, uh, so, you know, long story short, but back then it was a derogatory term. You looked down on it, but now with the, you know, technology the way it is, people like you are helping to spread the word, whether it's a, uh, a gathering in Tampa, Florida for a fundraiser for a wall uh, that you talk to Dusty about or, you know, somebody's promoting a book. I mean, you know, so I, I think Dusty evolved. Dusty was a smart guy. And, you know, the people he might have looked down to a little bit, you know, in, in the 70s because that's just the way it was. I think he 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 learned to value and you know smart guys get with the times and dumb people stick with the old ways and and Dusty was definitely a smart one. Hmm. Now speaking of somebody that uh, you know changed with the times and uh, adapted, sadly enough, another legend gone way too soon and it was a guy that you were actually a manager for 
uh, well, not in front of the camera, behind the camera, we're a manager for it, and that's the late, great Rowdy Roddy Piper. What are your memories of the Hot Rod? Because he's another guy that's just so nice, and he always seems to adapt and change with the time. Well, I, you know, Roddy was, was a great guy, and uh, that all happened, came along at the perfect time. I needed a job. He needed a tour manager, and and uh, uh, we kind of meshed, and uh, it was great. Um, but Roddy, you know, if you work for Roddy, Roddy expected you to work your butt off. He expected to work hard and to work smart, and, and if you didn't, he wasn't afraid to let you know. And, you know, as, as, as nice and as warm as Roddy could be, and he, and he was, uh, Roddy could be stern if, if, if you know, if, if – he wasn't happy with the way things went, so you had to really work hard, you know, um, you know, to, to please Roddy Piper. But when you pleased him, he took care of you, and um, you know, he's he's great, you know, to me, t- took care of me, and you know, not a, not a lot of people. I think there was four of us in there could say that we spent fifty days in a tour bus crisscrossing the country with Roddy Roddy Piper. It was quite the experience, and um, you know, every day was challenging because you never knew what it was going to bring. We did tons of media every day that I set up, and. Uh, you know, you really got to see the real person because, you know, not everybody's in a good mood every day and some people can't sleep at night and, and so they, they're cranky in the morning and some people, uh, you know, they, they, they get in an argument with their wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever and I'm not saying that stuff happened. I'm just examples of how life gets in the way sometimes. So when you spend that much time with somebody, you get to see the real them and while he could be tough and he had his moods, he was a really sincere, nice guy and um, I really, I, I enjoyed it and, um, you know, he, he really instilled a work ethic in me. I already had a work ethic from working in this business and working for WCW, but he reinstilled a work, work ethic in me that, you know, that I still hold to this day as a realtor in the Tampa area is you got to work your butt off. And, you know, not everybody's going to be happy, and you just got to roll with the punches and, you know, try to, you know, make everybody happy. So, um, you know, it was a pleasure to work for him and an honor to get to know him. You know, he was one of my favorite wrestlers going up. My three favorite wrestlers were Roddy Piper, Terry Funk, and Dusty Rhodes. I got to work for two, and I got to know Terry real well. And so, you know, I look back at my time in, in this business, and, and how lucky was I? I mean, I, you know, I pinch myself sometimes telling these stories because, you know, I can remember as a kid growing up and watching angles with Dusty and Terry and Roddy Piper on Georgia Championship Wrestling and, you know, uh, all these, you know, Piper's Pit and all that stuff. And, you know, I got to know all these guys. So, um, you know, just... Uh, I'm just honored to be to to have been a part of a small little bump in the road of this crazy business, which is utterly amazing, you know, to be associated with not only Piper but Dusty Rhodes as well. But if I can move forward just a little bit and move to about '93, 1994, in WCW, now, did you actually work backstage for WCW, or were you a, a booking agent? What was your actual role with WCW? And well, what happened is. What happened is Bob Roop, who was who we talked about earlier, Bob Roop got a job as an agent for uh, Ole Anderson in WCW, and um, you know Bob said I'll, I'll put in a good word. You know I don't know what I could do for you, but I'll put in you know I'll put in a good word. So he called me up a couple weeks after he started, and he said, I "Want you to find a couple of you know they called them job guys at the time, but enhancement talent, and I want you to rent a car. WCW will pay you back for it, and I want you to drive up to um, uh, believe it was Marietta, Georgia." And um, meet uh, Jody Hamilton, who was the assassin who booked the enhancement talent, and check out check in with him. Uh, and the deal that you have to make is uh, the enhancement talent get $150 for being there. They're going to give you 25 for towards the car and booking them, and uh, and you know they'll make 125. So that was sort of the standard 
deal. It wasn't a deal that really WCW made. It was sort of a way to get to have four or five central people booking the enhancement talent so you didn't have to deal with 25 guys every Monday and Tuesday. So you sort of had outside agents. And WCW never – all they did is pay for the trans for the car. Um, so, you know, it sort of worked for everybody. Rip Rogers did it out of Louisville. And Mike Jackson did it out of Alabama. George South did it out of the Carolinas. And I sort of took over Florida. And, you know, those guys all got to wrestle. So they made their 150 plus their 25 plus their trans. So they, they had it great. I didn't wrestle, obviously. So I went up there and I met with Jody and he explained the deal. And I said, all right, I just want to get my feet in the door. Is there anything I could do while I'm here? I understand, you know, I'm not going to get paid right now. I'm making my money for, you know, bringing these guys up. But is there, you know, I have my foot in the door now. I'm thinking to myself, is there anything I could do? Jody said, I'll talk to some people. So at the next day, the booking meeting or the next week, sorry, he meant she said, look, go find Jim Ross. He runs the uh, the promos for the, the, the uh, towns. So they basically did promos all day for the towns, uh, market-specific promos at the time. And um, if you re- don't remember, uh, those are the ones where, you know, whoever it was, Mean Gene, Jim Ross, whoever would say, uh, Greensville, South Carolina, we're coming to you in two weeks. And he'd go down, run down the matches, and they'd bring in a guy. You, I don't know if you remember that, but um, you know. And then they'd mm-hmm. insert them. They'd insert them in the in all the different tapes for all the different markets all over the country. So there was a lot of interviews that needed to be done. Um, kind of ironic. Later on in WCW, I was in charge of producing those market uh, market interviews. But um, I'm jumping ahead anyway. So I ran guys, and um, I. You know, he would say, I need Rock and Roll Express, I need Ole and Gene Anderson, I need Ric Flair, blah, 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 and I'd go find those guys, and I'd bring them and, uh, you know, get coffee if somebody wanted coffee. I did whatever I needed to do, quite frankly. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's how it started, and they would give me little other things to do. There was a sign-in sheet that people had to sign that gave uh, WCW the right to air the material, and um, so I started doing that. All the new enhancement talent had to fill out a pay sheet. So little by little, I just started doing more things, and eventually they needed a backup ring announcer, and I got an opportunity and I uh, got the job. Sort of think more by default than anything else because I was already coming up there, so they figured why well, pay for another guy to come up. But uh, I, got, I got a lucky break, and I, I thank God I made the most of it. Now, were you actually trained at all by Gary Michael Capetta? Because he was your predecessor, I guess, at that point. Um, he helped me. He gave me tips. I watched him because I was there. Uh, you know, that's another thing. I would make sure all the guys were at the gorilla position two matches ahead of time. You know, so I was walking around all day. Junkyard Dog named me Walking Man. He said, look at Walking Man. Walking, walking, walking there and walking there and walking all over all day, all night. You walk. So he called me Walking Man. Rest in peace, hmm. JYD. Nice guy. But, um... Uh, you know, so that's all I did all day was walk around and sort of run errands in a wrestling fashion, you know, instead of running errands for a job, I was running wrestlers, so to speak. And, um, you know, people got to know me and and more importantly, people got to trust me. The guys trusted me that, you know, like I said, you know, marks were frowned upon. So, you know, you had to gain their trust as, as one, sort of one of the boys kind of, and, uh, you know, it wasn't easy. I was driving, you know, 15 hours each way from, uh, Fort Lauderdale across the state of Florida, up 75 across I-4 up the turnpike and to Atlanta uh, area every week and back. So, um, but uh, back to your question, uh, Gary kind of took me under his wing. I got to watch him, like I said, and, and he was brilliant with the fans. So I kind of took a lot of what he did and 
I made it my own when I got the opportunity. So I didn't want to copy him, but I kind of, you know, took what he did in theory and changed the verbiage, so to speak. And when he knew he was leaving, he did kind of take me under his wing at that point. And he, uh, he kind of said, you know, look, I'm leaving. And I said, no, you're not. They'll offer you a lot of money at the last minute. And I think they did offer him a lot of money at the last minute, but he was done. Um, and so he kind of said, this is what you need to do. And this is, I knew most of it already, but he was a really good guy. And I've always, uh, I will always appreciate what he did to help me. And, you know, I like to think that, uh, that I, I did the same thing. Uh, I remember seeing Dustin, Ro- Justin Roberts before he got his, uh, deal with WWF, WWE, and I was already done with WCW, and uh, so, you know, I had to understand that, you know, all good things must come to an end, and I told him, he said, do you have any advice? I'm going for a tryout with WWE, and I said, if you get that job, never get too cocky, never let it get in your head, because it's not going to last forever. He reached out to me when he was done, and he said, I want you to know I had a great run. It was the time of my life, and I have always taken your advice and never got too cocky because it was never going to last forever, and now it's over. So that was kind of cool. So I hope to, hope to, hope to think I, I paid it forward like Gary Capetta paid it forward to me. Hmm. Very true. It was almost like a full circle kind of thing there. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Now, when you actually got hired, you know, technically hired into the position, who was the one that you were answering to? Was it Tony Schiavone at this point? Um, when I first started, it was um, Gary Juster, because Gary, nobody's ever asked me that question. That's a great question. Gary Juster was in charge of live events, so and I was working for live events, so it was Gary Juster. And then uh, when uh, then I started doing some TV production stuff on the side, just to try to get my foot in as many doors as I can, because uh, I knew that you know, hey, you never know who's going to come in and be a vice president whose whose nephew always wanted to be a wrestling ring announcer. So, you know, and all of a sudden David Penzer's gone because, uh, you know, you know, his fill-in-the-blank son, cousin, uncle, you know, best friend's uh, kid wants to be wrestling. So I always wanted to do as much as I could so I'd keep my gig. So I started doing production. And then when I did production, yeah, Tony Schiavone was my immediate supervisor. He's uh, one of the VPs of production for the television shows. Tony like is you hear two different things. I mean, we've talked to Jim Ross and Jim Ross actually says he loves Tony. He's just a great guy. We always hear, you know, the differing opinions from like uh, Bobby Heenan years ago was saying, you know, Shivani basically was hard to deal with and so on and so forth. But what was Tony Shivani really like? Tony's, Tony's a great guy. He really is. Um, you know, back in the heyday when this thing was exploding, everybody had a lot on their plate. Everybody, you know, people didn't realize this, but Tony had so many roles. He was, overseeing production of, you know, two syndicated shows. And then, uh, you know, and, 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 and when I say production, he had to make sure that those shows got uh, voiced over, edited, uh, sent out, uh, you know, uh, and, and that, every, and that the, the, the editors, he had to be in charge of the editors and the producers and the associate producers, which I started out being. And, and, you know, plus he had to do his job, which was pretty stressful to be the lead play-by-play guy on number one rated cable television show uh, and do more than that sometimes. So it got very tr- stressful. Tony had six kids, I believe, uh, a wife and six kids. And, you know, he, he just had a lot on his plate. And there were times he could be a little bit uh, uh, crabby, so to speak. Um, but, you know, everybody, you know, I lived through Crabbyville, USA and WCW. You know, this thing, people got to remember that this thing grew 
so, so fast, and nobody expected it because it had been mediocre for so long that um, nobody expected this meteoric rise. And all of a sudden, there's double the amount of TV shows, double the amount of the live events, and they tried to add more people, but, you know, you know, but all of a sudden, everybody had so much more on their plate and the pressure of staying number one and staying successful really puts a lot of pressure on you. So, you know, every, so, you know, it's easy to look back and say this guy was, could be crabby and this guy was in a bad mood and this guy didn't want to do a job to this guy. At the time, there were so many moving parts of what was going on that it, it, people were just trying going into self-protective mode and trying to, you know, stay afloat because nobody was getting any more than a few hours sleep a night and traveling from city to city. So it took its toll. It certainly did. But I, ho- I always tell people, I like to think that now after, you know, 15 years, however long it's been, that, uh, that people look back on it. I know I do and don't remember the negatives, just see the positives. And I've been in touch with Tony, and I know Tony's in such, such a better place right now and uh, loving what he's doing, being involved in baseball and Georgia uh, Bulldogs football and uh, – no, he's really a good guy at heart, and we have, we all had a lot of fun. I was telling another person who interviewed me a couple of weeks ago that we had a trailer in WCW and um, the announcers trailer, and it was me, uh, Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan, Gene Okerlund, Lee Marshall, Mike Tenay, uh, Larry Zbysko. Now think about that. I mean, take me out of the equation. I just sat and laughed for the most part. But think about, you know, Gene Okerlund, one of the wittiest guys, best interview in the history of the business. Mike Tenay, who's, who's one of the more dry sense of humor guys you're ever going to meet. Tony Schiavone, who had a great sense of humor. Bobby Heenan, who was one of the funniest guys in the history of the business. Larry Zbysko, who could, go, who could talk with the best of them. I mean, and Lee Marshall, who was, you know, uh, you know uh, over the top. I mean, that was, a, that was a, an amazing group of people to sit in the trailer for two or three hours between the production meeting, lunch and, and nitro going live and sit and tell stories. And, you know, I, I wish, I wish that I, you know, at the time you think it's going to go on forever, but I had such a good time and I wish I would have cherished it even more than I did. Cause um, you know, it was amazing. Yeah. Hey, I definitely look back at WCW and uh, I love it looking back. I mean, I try not to think of I me, mean, obviously there's some negatives, but I try to think of the positive. And two guys that really stick out to me as far as putting WCW on the map and leading them toward their meteoric rise, and that would be obviously Hulk Hogan, who is, you know, the man. And then you have a guy behind the scenes who, you know, took over, and that was Eric Bischoff. What were your thoughts, you know, at that point with Bischoff and Hogan? Did you feel, you know, that they were the right guys to lead the ship? Well, you know, WCW had tried everything that they possibly could, and it just nothing ever really clicked. So. You know, to be able to bring in a guy like Hulk Hogan, even though maybe it was a little bit late in his, or you thought it was at least in his in his career to give him the monster push that he got. But you know, when nothing else works, you you go to the the big the big guy, so to speak. And Hulk Hogan was the big guy in this business. And so you know, if you get a chance to bring a Hulk Hogan from WWF, you know, you got to take that chance and take the risks and. You know, not everybody in WCW, the old style fans who, who you know, were raised on a different style down south. Not everybody liked Hulk and and what he brought with the say your prayers, eat your vitamins kind of stuff. But you know, you got to appeal to the masses because the people that didn't like Hulk Hogan, they weren't exactly making WCW, uh, you know, a, a, a money winning organization at the time. So I think Eric did a brilliant thing by bringing Hulk in, and I think that Hulk by turning heel at the bash at the beach. Uh, I think that 
set WCW on fire. We were already getting there with Randy. We had a Randy Savage versus Ric Flair feud, uh, and that sort of moved the the attendance and started getting a buzz. But you know, when Nash and Hall came in, and then Hulk made that heel turn and said, you know, the fans could go to hell. That was uh, that was what got us going. And um, it wouldn't have happened without Hulk agreeing to come. Moreover, Hulk agreeing to turn heel, which I can imagine at the time, looking back, he was really questioning, and I don't blame him. And um, and then Bischoff, uh, you know, doing what he did and bringing the talent in and, uh, you know, the Halls and the Nash and the Lugers and the all the people that he brought in and, and really put together an amazing uh, roster of talent and then bringing in the, the Luchadors and the the Dean Malenko's, Eddie Guerrero's, Chris Jericho's, Benoit's, et cetera. Uh, what, a, what a bunch of undercard talent to, to, to highlight, you know, to, to highlight underneath the, the legends and the halls and ashes of the world. So I give both guys a lot of credit and, uh, you know, uh, just a shame it all fell apart. Yeah, it was almost, uh, I guess, maybe too much too soon because it seemed like it's uh, down and all of a sudden, boom. Uh, you know, Savage and Flair, they're picking up business, uh, picking up house show business, picking up ratings. Obviously, Monday Nitro starts, and boom, you know, they're off to the races. But you were there for pretty much every Monday Nitro from 95 to 2000. Never, I'm the only person that never missed one. <laughs> that is quite we, I, did, I, I asked around. I asked around right after WCW ended, and uh, we, we figured out that I'm the only person to ever uh, to ever be at every Monday Nitro. Wow. That's quite a piece of trivia. What did you yeah. think of Nitro when it? Yeah, definitely. What did you think of Nitro when it first started, and then obviously, you know, it ended up uh, dying out. But what were your thoughts when it first went up against Raw? Did you think it was going to make it? I, if I'm being honest, I don't think anybody did. I don't really think Eric did. Uh, I think he so much as admitted it. You know, Ted Turner said, "What could I do to be competitive?" and 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 Eric, if the story goes, Eric said, put us up uh, live against Nitro, thinking, yeah, right, he's never going to do that. He said, all right, you got it. And I think Eric was as surprised as anybody else. So if I'm being honest, nobody thought. But I'll tell you what, when when we I got to that first Nitro in the Mall of the Americas, and I and I realized that we recently celebrated, I think, the 15th anniversary of that, or 20th anniversary, maybe, of the Mall of yep, the American 20. Nitro. 20. But uh, so... You know, when I got there and I saw what they had put together and they had, uh, you know, Pillman and, and Jushin Liger and they had uh, Hogan and I think Bossman under a different name and, you know, Sting and Flair. And and then and I, I thought to myself, you know what, if, if they could somehow keep this going week to week, this is a, you know, because you got to remember, the, you know, WCW Saturday Night at the time, which was our made, our flagship show was squash matches and, um, you know, one or two main event caliber matches to build to angles. <coughs> Excuse me. So I said to myself, if they could keep this going, they might have something there. But do you really think you're going to compete with, you know, Monday Night Raw? So, you know, I don't think anybody did. But um, I'll tell you what, when Luger walked out and nobody knew, and when I say nobody, Vince didn't know, I think there was probably five people that knew that Luger was there that day. And when he walked out and did what they did, I got goosebumps, and I said, you know what? He might be on to something here. And, um, you know, and then the next week we came, and I think the world would be cautiously optimistic. You know, every week was something different. There was a new type of match. There was a new style. There was a, a, a surprise. And we kept, as the weeks went by and the ratings sort of stayed a little strong, even against Raw that were live, 
I think, you know, I think we were cautiously optimistic. And then the NWO came, and uh, it was like, uh, all right, you better strap up your seatbelt because uh, this uh, train's going at the, the speed of sound. So, uh, yeah. But at the beginning, I, I, anybody that tells you that that first Nitro, they thought that it was going to be the success it would be, I was either lying or had too much to drink. <laughs> you know, it's funny, looking back, though, when Nitro was at its best and you had had a great booking and obviously the NWO and everything else, I don't think Raw was ever, and even, you know, obviously now it stinks, but ever, ever could touch how good Nitro was when Nitro was at the top of its game with the NWO. Even with, uh, you know, Stone Cold and McMahon, I don't think it ever could get as good as Nitro was. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know. The, the, the Stone Cold Vince McMahon, Mr. McMahon era was pretty darn good, compelling television. I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, <clears throat> But, um, so I don't know if I agree with you on that, but, uh, <laughs> certainly, certainly for the first, until they hit that, um, that Mr. McMahon, Vince McMahon angle and the, the, that, that stage of their, uh, television product, they certainly didn't have a clue how to compete with, with Monday Night Show and it really took them a while and they almost kind of lucked into it because I, I, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm almost positive that the Stone Cold Steve Austin as a babyface character was not in the plans and I know that until the Bret Hart screw job, Vince McMahon had no plans to be a character on television. So, you know, you almost lucked into it. And hey, that's not taken away from anything because uh, I'm sure Eric would admit that he lucked into a lot of things. But, um, mm. you know, it finally got, came together for them right around the time that our, our uh, you know, things started to fall apart with WCW. And uh, so, as we know, and they keep reminding us, uh, they ultimately won the thing. Yep. Now, see, uh, I'm more of a WCW guy than a WWF guy, so, of course, you know, lean towards uh, the NWO era over Austin McMahon, which was great, but I lean more towards that. But another thing that happened in WCW that I just loved because I couldn't tell if it was ad-libbed or if it was scripted, but it just totally entertained me, and I loved Chris Jericho. It was when you had, you know, a little, I wouldn't say a feud, but it was when he kept losing. He was a crybaby, and, he, you know, he would lose the match, and he would totally just rip your jacket and push you and, you know, and basically act like a big baby. Was that ad-libbed or was that totally scripted? When you say totally scripted, it wasn't scripted word for word, thing for thing. It was planned. I'm sorry. I have something in my throat. Um, You have to remember at the time, you know, you had WCW Monday Night Show who that was uh, so uh, popular. And then you had Thunder. It's another, so you had five hours of live television or live or taped live to tape television a week. And so Eric and, and then we're so uh, gravitated towards that, pl- planning that. So WCW Saturday Night and the syndicated shows sort of became, well, they were. They were B-shows. And, uh, you know, most of the time Eric and, you know, the powers that be weren't involved <clears throat> in, the, um, in the, the, day, the, day, the booking of those shows. I remember at one point, this was after that time with Jericho, but at one point we, WCW Saturday Night was booked by me, Tony Schiavone, uh, Arn Anderson and Jimmy Hart. That was when I don't know if you remember we uh, we had we made uh, Jim Duggan into a custodian and have him find the WCW TV title that they had taken. Yeah. That they had. Yeah. And that that was when we were booking. And you know, funny Jimmy used to worry that the ratings were were so good because we started you know using the the the, the, the secondary guys and doing little storylines. Uh, used to worry that the the ratings were get, getting so good that. Uh, we were going to end up getting removed because uh, because they didn't want to, you know, 
get any get ratings close to you know the big shows and eventually they did shut down that show and made it a kind of a a rewind show of the big shows and i think that was more for cost than anything else but um we were doing well but to to go back a little bit to me and jericho chris wanted to turn heel and um and so he came up with this little we came up but he was i would say it was um it was 85 percent chris and i had about 15 percent input just because he was doing it to me so but he came up we came up with the idea driving down the road you know he would lose he would rip off my my tux uh, jacket and uh, beat up my chair then the next week he would come and he would give me back a new tux jacket and uh and a new chair and then he'd lose and beat it up and that sort of lasted a few weeks i think carrie taylor was also involved in that angle and um and then uh he kind of turned him heel and you know the rest is history but it was fun to be a part of that and uh yeah me and chris spent a lot of time hanging out and chris is a, a fun person to be around i think most people know that but uh he's he's awesome guy it's so funny when i was watching that as a kid i was like this this can't be a part of the show i mean he just seems like because you know you played it off great you were like you weren't aware and then boom he rips off your suit and then he brings you a new suit every week it was just so funny it was almost it was almost as if um you know, like you were almost like tricking the fans a little bit, like blurring the line. I'm like, is this real? Is this supposed to be happening? Is Jericho, you know, what's going on with Jericho? So it was so funny. You guys played it off so well off of each other. Well, the one thing that that I learned in this business is when you're a five foot six, absolutely non-athletic guy like me, which I am, you, uh, whenever you're involved in any kind of physicality, uh, you could always get hurt. So whenever I was planned to be in physicality, I was always nervous as heck anyway. So if I sold it good, it was 99% uh, real fear and 1% sell- selling ability. So, uh, you know, uh, but uh, luckily I didn't have to be that physical that often. But, you know, every once in a while they want to get the ring announcer involved. And uh, so I had to take my lumps here. But Jericho never hurt me, but uh, but I was always nervous. So, you know, when I looked like I was scared, I was really scared. <laughs> <laughs> It is funny looking back. I have to go, you know, maybe on a WWE Network or maybe pop in my uh, my old Nitro DVDs and check it out uh, <laughs> again because that's so funny. I but, don't know that that stuff is on video. Have you seen it? Uh, I actually, you know, I used to record all the shows, so I had like every Nitro on, like uh, I had it on VHS and I recorded it over to. Yeah, that wasn't on Nitro though. That was on WCW Saturday Night. Oh yes, well there you, there was some uh, on um, Nitro as well. But yeah, Saturday night uh, I have you know, I got all the uh, I have the DVDs of that as well. I, like I said before, uh, probably not a wrestling historian. I'm probably more like a monk. I'd like I'd love to get a copy. Hit hit. <laughs> all right, I'll, I will try to work on that. Actually, I, I got to see if my recorder still works. I will work on that for you. No problem. <laughs> Thank you, man. We interrupt yeah. we interrupt this podcast so that the ring announcer guest hijacks free uh, <laughs> history uh, on DVD of of the angles he did. Sorry. <laughs> Hey, no problem. I was actually going to ask because uh, we were talking about, you know, the suits. And, you know, standard wrestling announcer like Howard Finkel, who had kind of the black suit and the bow tie, but you kind of did a little bit different. You had the colorful uh, cummerbund. You had a little bit of a different tuxedo. Was that done on purpose so you stood out more? Sort of. You know, my, my everybody could, every day when they dress for work, they could, you know, for the most part, you know, kind of dress the way they feel if, you know, what kind of mood they're in. And, you know, I had a black slacks and a white shirt and a black jacket, and that was my gimmick. So the only thing I got to change, not my gimmick, that was my dress uh, code. So the only thing I got to change was the cummerbund and bow tie. So, 
you know, when I realized that this was going to last a little bit, I would go out to different places, and if I saw anything off the wall or zany, or I had a Christmas one and a Thanksgiving one and a Disney one, and, you know, I'd buy them, and I'd take four or five sets with me on the road, and, you know, for a trip and whatever mood I was in, I'd throw it on, and uh, I still have all those in the closet, but... uh but yeah, it was it was fun. It gave me a a really cool opportunity to sort of be me, and uh, uh, you know, depending on what the day was. So yeah, it was. Uh, that's something that you know I even forgot. But you know, people bring that up. It's sort of something that made me stand out a little bit. And you know, everybody, especially in the entertainment entertainment business, needs to do a little something to help them stand out. In WCW, they would eventually bring in you know, for whatever reason or, or another, they would eventually bring in Michael Buffer and he would kind of be like the quote-unquote main event guy. He'd come out uh, for Hogan matches or any big uh, main event. Did you ever have an issue with that where you're kind of like working the whole night and all of a sudden this guy comes in as the, you know, the quote-unquote main event announcer? You know, was I happy that he was making a hundred times, a thousand times as much as I was to say, let's get ready to rumble? It wasn't the highlight of my life, but but let's let's get something straight. This is America. This is the land where anybody could come up with an idea, whether it be the pet rock or or a catchphrase, and they can make millions and millions of dollars. And and that's what makes this country great. So while I, I, well, I'm not going to lie and say sometimes it's frustrating when you know he's making more saying one line than I'm making in in three weeks. Uh, but I never let it get to me. I, I just always said, look, he, you know, you know, I, I, if I just keep working hard and and, uh, and 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 you know, honing my craft and you know, doing things on the side, you know, someday I'll I'll get there and you know, maybe I'll be the guy that comes in and does the main event and and um, you know and you know, you never know what would have happened if WCW would have stayed around. I was so involved at the very end with so many different facets of booking committees and uh, uh, talent relations and. You know, I really feel like uh, if this thing was still around, I could have been a VP or something, you know, but it didn't, so I, I didn't. But, you, you know, you never know. So I just kept working hard, and, you know, I never let the small stuff bother me, and that was a small thing. But, you know, it was a great line, and uh, and he deserved to uh, to be able to make his money to go out and get the crowd going. And it certainly got the crowd going. Yeah, no doubt about that. And you actually just touched on something I wanted to ask you about, and that was the end of WCW. Now, at the end, were you shocked to see, you know, it all come down and it all end? Were you shocked to see Vince McMahon one or the other end buying WCW? I don't know that anybody was shocked to see it end. Um, the writing was on the wall that something was going to happen, and even Eric had a uh, had a company that he was uh, uh, that he had Fusion Media that uh, had was actually in their due diligence uh, portion of a sale to buy it. So, you know, I don't think anybody was shocked to see it change hands in one form or another. Uh, I think the two things that shocked me were that they sold it to WWE and then to find out it was so cheap. Um, and then, uh, you know, that they canceled the programming because even though it wasn't as, you know, number one anymore, the ratings for Nitro were still the top 10, 20 uh, ratings in all of cable television. It still got a healthy audience, even at, a, at its worst. You know, the pay-per-views didn't sell a lot of pay-per-views. The house shows weren't doing that well. But Nitro was still a brand that people would go out and see. It was a Monday night tradition. And, you know, to see that, that uh, uh, you know, Turner had lost his uh, his power with the Time Warner AOL merger, and they brought somebody in who wasn't a wrestling fan, and he just decided, I don't like this, and I don't care who likes it, and I'm going to cancel it. And, you know, I think that was the shock. And then Vince, you know, bought it for so cheap was the shock. 
You know, I, I told this story on another podcast. The way I found out that it happened was a friend of mine called me and said, turn on WWF at the time dot com. So I turned it on and there's a, a splash page and it had the WWE logo or WWF, whatever it was called, in the upper left hand corner. And there was a big purchases in the middle. And then on the bottom right hand corner, it had the WCW logo. And that's literally how I found out, you know, there was speculation and rumors, but that's how I knew it for sure. And I had said on the uh, on the podcast, and the guy made a big deal out of it that I cried. I didn't really cry literally, but figuratively, I shed some tears. You know, I had worked hard, and it was it was a huge shock. But uh, but just to set the record straight, I didn't really like have tears in my eyes. But uh, I think I put that on Twitter. But uh, you know, but it, it was it all happened. So you know, this whole thing happened so fast. You went from you know from doing you know a couple of shows a week to doing you know three. Three house shows, uh, Monday night show of Thunder on Tuesday, uh, uh, WCW night every other Wednesday. Then you got home Thursday morning, had to do laundry, dry cleaning, and uh, repack your stuff. And then you were leaving Friday again morning to do uh, to do more shows. So you know we went from a light schedule to a crazy schedule, and you know, and, and then all of a sudden it it ended. Uh, so it was it was a crazy ride. I'll tell you that it was a blast looking back at it, but it was a crazy ride. Would you attribute, you know, the the writing being on the wall and WCW ending and stuff, would you attribute it to a lot of, like, backstage politics and, you know, that everyone says, like, quote-unquote, the NWO was a poison and this guy was politicking that. Would you think a lot of it had to do with the politics or did you think a lot of it had to do with, the, you know, the AOL Time Warner and that whole merger? Well, ultimately, you know, there was a, there was a, a situation where Eric got burnt out. Obviously, he had so much going on at the time, and he just burnt out mentally and physically. And everybody knows he got sent home. and And after that, I I I don't think anybody else had the vision uh, that Eric did. You know, they brought in Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara, and you know, you could debate all day and night whether it was successful or not. Ed's a good friend. Vince is a good guy. I'm not really friendly with him. Uh, do I did I like their style at the time? No, I didn't. Um, but you know, it wasn't my job to tell them I didn't like it. It was my job to do what they told me to do. And um, you know, I, then they brought Eric back to be with Vince, and I think they just never regained the swag that they had at the beginning. And then you know, you partner that with Turner losing power because you know Turner could have shut down WCW years before that, and he was losing money years before that before it started being ridiculously profitable. And Ted came in and said, there was a meeting, and Ted said, you know, wrestling got me to where I am, and I'll never, as long as I have any power, I'll never shut this company down. And, you know, he eventually lost that power to keep it running at a, at a deficit. Uh, other people came in and decided that they didn't agree with him, and, and Ted didn't, like you said, didn't have the power anymore. Uh, I know for a fact Ted was furious when the, the gentleman canceled the television and I've heard stories of him walking into his office and dropping some F-bombs. But um, at that point, there was nothing he could do. Uh, you know, he didn't have the power anymore to order it back on the air. So, but I mean, you know, it, a lot of it was a big part of it, but I, I think, I really think when Eric went away, nobody had a true vision for what it should be. And the vision got so chopped up and diced around and then you got so many people jockeying for power. There was so much money on the line. And whenever there's money on the line, you know, everybody will be like sharks in a shark tank. They even made a show about it, as you can see. But, um, you know, it, 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 it just, 
at the time, it wasn't a good atmosphere. Uh, I look back and I, I try not to dwell on that, but you got to call a spade a spade, and the atmosphere just wasn't good. It, it was a poison at one point, and uh, everybody was so worried about you know making money and power that uh, they really didn't see the big picture. And a lot of people made a lot of money. Uh, you know, there's people that are still retired to this day or not having to sweat a making a living based on the money that they made, and that's good for them. But um, that kind of stuff could warp your 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 thinking a little bit, your your attitude. And uh, there was a few that got warped, and I think if they were honest with themselves, that they would admit it. And you know, it's just the way life is. I have a random. WCW question for you. You know, I've always been curious about it. I don't. I know you were there, but I don't know if you would know this or not. Though, what really happened? Starcade '97, the finish with Nick Patrick, Hogan, and Sting. Do you have any clue? Were you, you know, clued in? I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I didn't know what was supposed to go down till afterwards, because uh, I was friends and I and I traveled with Randy Anderson, who uh, who was uh, a referee, and. Um, and travel with Arn Anderson a lot, who at that time was an agent. Uh, at, at the, afterwards, I, I, I didn't hear about it, but at the time I had no idea because, like I said, we had a trailer out with the announcers, so that kind of stuff I wasn't privy to. And usually with the main events and the pay-per-views, they just said announce what you see or we'll tell you what to say. So it, a lot of that stuff wasn't in the, the script. But um, I'm not exactly – there's so many versions of what of what was supposed to happen and what did happen. Um, you know, I know that to this day, Nick Patrick swears he counted fast. And Nick Patrick always had a slow, methodical count, uh, slower than, say, like a Pee Wee Anderson or a, a Brian Hildebrand, Mark Curtis. And um, and so, you know, it, to him, that could have been a fast count. But, uh, you know, it, it, obviously, if you look at it, it wasn't as, it didn't stand out as a, as a heel referee fast count. So, you know, it, it's sort of like the Vince... Russo Hulk Hogan thing on the pay-per-view where there was litigation and so, you know a lot of that stuff's going to die with the people that w- went through it because you know there's there's always three stories and usually the truth right down the middle of the three stories but um I I, I to be I I didn't know to answer your question I didn't know it uh, that was supposed to be the finish I was clued in at the end and I don't think anybody will truly know what really happened except for, except for the people except except for the people involved. Right, such a highly, highly debated, uh, you know, topic, and you know, this is 20 years later, and I, I'm still curious about what happened. Uh, it's just one of those things that, obviously, like you just mentioned, the Hogan Russo thing, still baffling. I mean, there's some stories there from Russo, and then you got a story from Bischoff. So, very, very. Well, this is what I could tell you. This is the one thing I could tell you about the Hogan Russo thing, and you didn't even know you were going to get this out of me, but I've, I've, I've told a few people before. Booker T was definitely scheduled to be WCW World Heavyweight Champion on Monday Nitro, the day after. Because I was, when I was assistant talent relations manager, I was told by Terry Taylor, my boss, to call Booker T and tell Booker T not to tell anybody, but that he was to bring a nice suit to Monday Nitro because he was going to be the world champion. So you could say what you will about what happened and if Russo went into business for himself or it was planned or it wasn't planned or double cross or triple cross, but I could tell you without a doubt, as I'm sitting here today, that Vince Russo, that, that, that Booker T was told in advance by me on the direction of the talent relations director to tell him to bring a suit because he was going to be world champion. He knew the Thursday before he flew there that he was going to be world champion. Whether that changed back and forth, I have no idea. 
you know, there could have been four different changes back and forth in that original idea. But that, that was the call I made, and all I could do is tell what I know. Very interesting. Wow, another There you go. There's a, there's a nugget for you. Nice. That is great. Because, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of back and forth. Even recently, because they recently put out uh, a WCW, WWF, uh, Monday Night War DVD, and actually uh, it was volume two, and Eric Bischoff, recent footage, they just interviewed him, I guess, in, at his home. And, uh, you know, he, they let him speak his mind on WCW, and there was a point where he was talking about Vince Russo, you know, and he tears him apart, and he, and he actually talked about that incident, saying that Russo took it too far. Well, you know, I sort of think that's what happened, if I had to guess. I sort of think, because I, I sort of, at that time in WCW, had a little bit more knowledge of what was going on. And I think what happened is I think that they were supposed to shoot an angle where, uh, where uh, Vince stripped Hogan of the title and, and, and eventually Booker T was made champion, because I think they were going with the youth movement. And the idea was always you could bring Hogan back and, make a, and, and have him challenge Booker T, because he never lost the title. I think what probably happened is Russo got pissed, and Russo went into business for himself because Russo had a temper and um, and uh, and took the angle way too far. Said way more than him and Hogan agree, had agreed were going to be said. And uh, and and you know, if I had to be, if I was a betting man, I'd bet that that was what happened. But you know, no, again, nobody will really ever know because Russo's going to stick to his story, and Eric's going to stick to his story, and Hulk's going to stick to his story, and Jeff's going to stick to his story, and nobody else really knows. With WCW, there was a lot of the time, you know, as a fan, you're so curious, but it seemed like a lot of people backstage were even curious about what, you know, what they were seeing and, and possibly some controversy going on. So WCW always had you guessing, even still now, you know. Yeah, they booked to, to, to work the boys. Uh, it was, uh, at the time, it was scratch your head booking. But, uh, you know, if the, fan, if the fans bought into it, I guess, if the boys bought into it, I guess they figured the fans bought into it. But there, there was quite a few times that they, uh, they, uh, they, worked, uh, they booked to work the boys. So, uh, you know, you could, say that, you could say about that what you will. But, uh, you know, if it was successful, then good for, for them. And if it wasn't, then, you know, I guess you should learn from your mistakes. But uh, I had heard at one point during the heyday, there was a angle that Eric. Now, don't quote me on this because I just heard this. I don't know this for a fact, but I had heard that there was an angle that Eric wanted to book where he was going to have Buff Bagwell die in a car accident, tell the boys and the and the world that Buff Bagwell died in a car, uh, uh, an airplane accident. Sorry, a small plane or car or car or an airplane, and then they were going to have Buff Bagwell show up a couple of weeks later. Um, I, I don't know if that's true. I heard he had to get t- talked out of it. I, again, I don't know if that's true. That was just a rumor that went around. That could be totally something somebody started to try to stir some, you know what? So, but hmm. that is something that that is something that went around at the time that that he was planning on doing that and had to be talked out of it. So whether that's true or not, I never did. I've seen Eric several times after that, and I, I always I should have asked him, and I never did, and he probably wouldn't tell me, and he'd probably get annoyed at me for asking if I know Eric. <laughs> with uh, you know WCW obviously, and with the Monday Night War DVD coming back up and with Bischoff being a part of it. I'm curious, do you actually still watch wrestling? Or you, do you have the network, or do you maybe watch Raw? I have the network. My 20-year-old son, who's in college in Ohio, is a fan of NXT and some of the WWE. Uh, so, and I like, you know, I got the network for him, and also to watch, you know, things like the Hall of Fame. I love to watch the Hall of Fame 
ceremony and uh you know some of the documentaries that they have on are really cool you know i would buy some of those dvds before they had the network you know they used to have that legends roundtable show that was really neat that i would watch and they still have in repeats so yeah for for 9.99 i uh you know a month i i pay for it and um you know as far as watching it i i, I usually dvr raw depending on uh, the time of the year and the angles, I would spend about 20 minutes to 10 minutes to 30 minutes, maybe fast forwarding through it and watching some of the, the angles. Um, I watched Jeff Jarrett get inducted in the TNA hall of fame. I thought that was really classy and I was really glad for Jeff. Uh, he deserved that. Um, you know, I watched some of the pay-per-views, uh, I watched the match with, uh, Brock and Undertaker at SummerSlam and, some of those, but I, I, I only watch the big two or three. I like the Royal Rumble match. I think it's a great concept. Um, so I'll probably watch that. But, you know, and of course I watch WrestleMania, but uh, very little of it. Um, you know, like I said, my, my son is a big NXT fan, and I think that that's the market that they're going to, the demographics of the college kids. And, you know, they keep the, the angles simple and the wrestling simple, and, you know, they build the stars slowly. And, I really think that they're onto something with that. And uh, who would have thought that the biggest competition to WWE would be a WWE product? I don't think even uh, Triple H would have predicted that. Although he'll take credit for it now, and he deserves to. <laughs> That's a good point, and it's funny. Like you, you need competition. You know, just manufacture it yourself with uh, you know a product that is somewhat like a, a Ring of Honor or maybe like an old school ECW kind of uh, promotion. It's a very simple promotion. You don't have to. You know, watch it and rewind it. To, you don't have to see 42 replays to understand the angles. Uh, they don't insult your intelligence. I'm not saying anybody else does, but they don't. And, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, when I finally started taking notice of it, I don't watch NXT. I, I did watch a couple of the matches from the TakeOver show in Brooklyn uh, on replay on the network. But, um, uh, but you know, in my in, – in, in, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's booked very simply and, um, and, and, you know, uh, the matches are really good quality for the most part. And, uh, you know, if you would have told anybody, and I would venture to say that Hunter would probably agree to this, maybe begrudgingly that, uh, women's matches would headline and, uh, or co-headline and steal the big shows. I don't think anybody would have ever, uh, predicted that i think the whole reason that that show's done like that is because they got these young kids that are they're trying to teach the business so they wanted to keep it very simple but i think pe- that the fans really caught on to the simplicity of 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 the the wrestling and the old almost 1970s style uh one hour television shows you know that don't do 40 angles or 10 angles or five angles in a show and just do it very slowly and simply. So uh, I don't I don't think that they started out trying to be competition for WWE, but I think that the the model that they implemented uh, because they had such young talent ended up really catching the the eye of this generation. And so good for them. Hey, any competition is good competition, whether it comes from within. That is very true. Now, an old buddy of yours has uh, returned once again recently, and obviously he's the franchise, the face of WCW, where he was, probably the most popular guy ever in the history of WCW, and that is the Stinger. What do you think about him still wrestling? I believe he's 56 or 57, but what do you think about him returning? He, I mean, he looks great, but what do you think about him returning to the WWE? Uh, I think it's an attraction. I think it's really cool. I mean, I think if he went on the road and, and was doing, you know, uh, 200 shows a 
a year, it'd be silly, and, and, and he wouldn't do it even if they begged him to do it because he doesn't want to work that kind of schedule. I know from TNA, um, you know, TNA, he never wanted to do the live events, just the TVs, and he's earned that. And, uh, you know, he saved his money wisely, so, so God bless him. But I think he's a great attraction who's never one of the few big stars who's never been in WWE before WrestleMania time and who's never headlined for a WWE championship. I think it's a brilliant move. I think it's cool. Um, I think a lot of people are really getting into it. And um, I hope they do right by him. And, they, and I, you know, they could build it up to, you know, maybe a couple appearances in the next couple of years for big angles and then let him go out with a Hall of Fame speech and, and a ring and, and, and uh, right off in the sunset only to be brought back when it's WrestleMania time. Hmm. That, that's a great plan. That's a good idea. Now you mentioned, and, and he's yeah, a good guy and he's a good guy. And when they did that WrestleMania package and the first thing you heard was my voice, that was one of the coolest things. So I was honored, you know, I never got to work for WWE. I came close a couple times and it never worked out. And just the way the, the, the ball bounces, but, um, but that was cool to be to be highlighted in that WrestleMania package, and uh, you know that was a cool experience that I could show my kids and show my family. So uh, that was neat, and I'm glad for Sting that he got that moment uh, at WrestleMania. It's always cool to hear your voice. It reminds me, you know, old school WCW. You got that great voice, and uh, you know, literally puts you back. And uh, definitely, uh, it was definitely great to hear you on. You know, that, that video fact, that was real cool. I didn't know that was coming, so I was actually watching. Uh, my son My son was home from college, and we were watching the show at the time because if I could watch wrestling, you know, I, you know, I don't know if you have kids or not, but when you have kids, especially when they get to be teenagers, you know, you'll, you'll watch something you hate just to spend a little time hanging out with them because uh, you know, usually they don't want any part of their parents unless it's tasked for money. Uh, but uh, so he wanted to watch. he wanted to watch Raw at the time, and, I was sitting there watching it, and all of a sudden I heard my voice, and I didn't know at the time. So that was a really cool thing to to, to experience. But uh, you know, but I didn't know it was coming, so it was a cool little surprise. That's cool, and I I have a one month old son, so now I, I know what uh, something to look forward to in the future. I'm gonna have to watch some stuff I don't want to watch. Oh man, uh, speak <laughs> speak of a wild ride. Head, strap on your seatbelt and hang on for that one, because. Uh, that's a roller coaster that never keeps uh that never gets to the easy part. Uh with every uh with every advance there comes a new uh a new issue and a new it's it's it's, it's definitely as cool as it is uh nerve-wracking, but it's certainly uh it's an experience. So enjoy it, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's funny I said to my wife that he's only a month old, but he's the most unpredictable person, you know, I've ever seen in my life. I never know what he's going to do next. Yeah, they're like that. And then wait till they're 20. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I was going to mention uh, before, uh, just briefly, but I was going to say, you I know you had a little bit of a run in TNA as we were talking about staying and him not doing live events, but what were your overall impressions of TNA? Were they as dysfunctional as uh, everyone paints them out to be? Um, at times, but at times, a, a, a lot of times, no. I think, if I'm being honest, I think when Jeff left, uh, I think they, I think they kind of lost their pulse, uh, even though he wasn't on TV at the time. He was still, you know, he was that wrestling presence and been, you know, grew up in the business. And I think when he left, I think it really hurt him. I wasn't around at the time, but that's my observation from looking from afar. Um, I had a great time there. Um, it was supposed to be a short-term thing. It ended up being a five-year run. I lived in Tampa. I drove to Orlando. I did my get my thing. Uh, they put me in a hotel. I had a few drinks, told some stories, heard a lot of stories, hung out with great people, Mike Tanay, Kevin Nash, Don West, Ric Flair when he came in. Uh, 
So uh, Keith Mitchell, who's a producer who we had a lot of a lot of fun with, uh, after the show was over, telling stories and um, and they paid me really well. And then I went home and did my regular gig. So uh, it, it, I, I have no complaints. They paid me well. They took care of me well. It was an easy gig, you know, as far as just going out there and doing the thing I've always done. So. Uh, it started as a couple of week uh, thing and it lasted five years. So I'll always appreciate Jeff and Dixie and and the whole crew there for what they did. And I hope, you know, I really hope that they they're able to find both Jeff and Dixie with their individual projects. I hope they're able to find their niche. Uh, I I was part of an organization where uh, it I had to find another line of work for a little while or find another place to get a paycheck, and that's not fun, you know. Uh, there's there's some people who who get in this business through fluke and you know they don't appreciate it, but I'd say 90% of the people that get in this business they do it because they love it uh, and they've wanted to do it since they were a kid. And so to be able to finally live your dream and take it from me, I've been there. Live your dream and make a living doing it and having a little bit of notoriety, uh, albeit as small or as big as it might be, uh, it, it's hard to walk away from that, especially when it's not on your terms. So I don't wish that on anybody. Uh, I hope everybody finds success and. You know, uh, that's that's really all on that. But, you know, it, it, I hope that, that they're able to pull it out. I really do. Now, is it true when you were there that, you know, obviously there was an incident with Kurt Angle with the ankle lock, but is it true that you actually were injured or was that just the Internet rumor? Oh, you haven't seen the picture? No, no. Well, there were four things that were supposed to happen. He was supposed to elbow me in the face. Then he was supposed to um, clothesline me. Then he was supposed to take my shoe and hit me over the head with it, and then and I was supposed to keep my my hands over the head so that he would just be hitting my hands, my arms, and then he was supposed to put me in the ankle lock. The two things that I was least worried about were the two things that killed me, my face, to the point where I had two huge bumps on either side of my, one on my jaw on one side, one on my cheek on the other side. Uh, I'll tell you what, you send me those videos of Jericho beating me up, and I'll send you the 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 video and the picture, the after picture of the, uh, of the Kurt Angle one. The clothesline I didn't feel, the ankle lock I didn't feel, the elbow to the jaw almost locked me for unconscious, and, the, um, and hitting me with my shoe, I did what I was supposed to do, but unfortunately he got me over my arms in my uh, cheek. So, uh, yeah, it took about a week and a half for the swelling to go down, and uh, they gave me a nice little bonus after the fact for getting hurt, so I do appreciate the bonus. And, uh, but Kurt Angle is snug and he was very apologetic. He felt horrible. He didn't do it by any means on purpose, but, uh, he's just a snug guy. He's a, uh, Olympic gold medalist, legit wrestler. He doesn't pull any punches. And I don't know if he was afraid I wouldn't sell it or I wouldn't feel it, but, uh, he laid it in a little bit and, uh, I got, I got nicked up a little bit, but you know what? I, I live. So you, you live another day, but yeah, that was, that was, uh, legit. Oh, okay. Damn, I, got, I definitely want to see that. That's it. <laughs> You're very. Uh, you can probably find the picture on the internet if you Google my name and Kurt Angle and TNA. All right, well, they'll definitely, definitely. Check and that, that was out. not makeup, and that was not, uh, you know, anything. That was that was a legit picture, and uh, I look like the Elephant Man. Now, as uh, we start to wind it down a little bit here, one question I was very curious to ask you because you're obviously been in the business for a long time. You were obviously a great announcer for a long time, but Thank today you very it much. seems like no problem, yes. Today it definitely seems like they're missing something with the announcers. I don't know if it's because some of the females aren't as enthusiastic or aren't as energetic as, you know, guys in the past like yourself or 
uh, GMC or Howard Finkel, but what do you think the announcers are missing today? Because, I mean, Justin Roberts is obviously gone now, and they've been taken over by a couple of women, but what do you think the announcers uh, the announcers are actually missing because I feel like it's, they're not as impassioned as they used to be. Yeah, I think um, I think WWE is, is uh, and to a lesser extent TNA, following their lead has sort of made it much more simpler. It even got simpler from when Gary Capetto was there and Howard Finkel to when I was in WCW. They didn't have me on the air as much. They have so much information to get in. I'll tell you the answer to this question, and it just finally came to me. I've been asked it several times, and I never was able to really get a grip on it. But the answer to your question is they have so much information to get in. They don't have time to use a ring announcer to effectively. So they've basically made the ring announcer say as least as possible so that they have time to sell what happened in the, the, the segment before, what's coming up later in the show. Nobody changed the channel. And... You know, WCW was able to accomplish that a lot of times by just taking me offline and you could only hear me in the background. WWE still keeps them in. But, you know, I think the, the women do a good job. Uh, they're, they're certainly nicer to look at than me and Justin, if you're a, a young male or an older male. Um, you know, look, look, you look at when I grew up and the sideline reporters from the NFL were, um, were guys in suits and ties. And now, for the most part, they're pretty attractive intelligent women who actually grow up, you know, going to school to be a, a sports journalist. And, you know, they're nicer to look at. They're nicer to listen to. They're not, you know, so for the demographic that's watching, it's just, it's, it's the way that, that television and, and the world has evolved. And, you know, and, and that plus the, the so much information to get in, they want, they want to keep pounding in your head. This is what happened. This is what's coming up. Let's go to this package. Let's go to that package. Let's see what happened last week. Let's see what happened at SmackDown. Don't forget, there's the, here's your main event. Don't change the channel. And um, they just don't have time to have the old-style ring announcers. I think it's cool. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I know that when Jeff brought me back to do it off camera, he really loved, you know, that old-style ring announcing. Um, he didn't think he was going to, but he got to really love it as something different from the norm. Uh, I don't know what they're going to have on his TV show. I know he's using Brandon Baxter, who I think is doing other things in his company. But, um, uh, but you know, I don't know if he's going to be online old style or, or, or new style type of uh, information. But a lot of it is because they have to get so much info and keep shoving it down your throat. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because I was curious, you know, like, uh, you know, why the difference? Because when I was a kid, it was funny to, you know, watch the WBS, Howard Finkel, you would just get so into it, you know, you know, you're like, hey, no, WWF World Champion. I mean, he was the best, huh? The show. Yeah, he was the best of all time. I mean, and even yourself. I mean, it's just, you just add to the show. I feel like um, you can't get as excited as you, as you used to. But I guess that's the way the business is now. He'll be the only, he'll be the only, Howard Frick will be the only ring announcer with a WWE Hall of Fame ring, and deservedly so. He stood in, hmm. He stood out from everybody else, and uh, he's the best of all time. Definitely. Now, speaking of uh, being the best, who was your favorite guy to announce? Who was like, because I know uh, a, a long time ago I met uh, Gary Mike Capetta. He always said he enjoyed saying, this is Sting, you know, that, that classic line. But who was your favorite guy to announce that was coming down to the ring? I like that one, but I also love uh, Macho Man, Randy Savage. Uh because I love that music, that pomp and circumstance. I just thought it was, I, I never got tired. You know, there was music. We have to listen to that music every night, five days a night, a week. And um, 
you know, you got tired of a lot of that music, but I never got tired of that dun 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 dun, and then going into that music and then me introducing the match, and I, I just thought it was brilliant, and uh, that was probably other than the Sting one, and probably superseding the Sting one. That was the funnest. That was the funnest, uh, the, the the coolest one ever. Now, do you have a favorite match in WCW that you were at, you know, your ringside for that you watched live? Is there anything that comes to mind, maybe match or four matches? Um, I think I remember the really super cool angles better than the matches because there were so many great matches back in the day. I mean, when you've seen so many Rey Mysterio versus Eddie Guerrero 20-minute matches and Chris Jericho and Dean Malenko, you know, versus uh, Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero, I mean, they, they – that, you know, you sort of sort of blur the line because there were so many great ones. But I think it, it's the classic angles that stand out. And the two of the angles that come always come to mind on Monday Night Show are when Scott Hall walked down in uh, Macon at the Macon Coliseum to interrupt uh, the match. Uh, and then he gave that, did that promo about Scheme Gene and, and, um, and Huckster. And, 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 you know, everybody knew they were coming. And nobody, and not most of the people in WCW, the workers and the and the, the you know only the the booking people knew that he was going to come in and they were going to play off that WWE angle as an invasion. And I just remember sitting there and going, "This is amazingly, this is this this is amazing that they're doing this." You know, I couldn't have thought of any better thing to do, and I wouldn't have in a million years thought this this is what you're going to do with them. So I can remember that, and I also remember when um, in. Uh, South Carolina, Arn put the horsemen back together with JJ and Benoit and uh, Dean Malenko, Mongo, and then him himself. And then at the end, he teased that it was over. And then he announced Ric Flair, and Rick came out and did that sort of half shoot, half uh, half uh, uh, worked interview with Bischoff, where you know because he had been gone for six months because he'd been feuding with Bischoff. And you know, I rode with Arn Anderson, so Arn practiced that speech on me. You know, probably four or five nights in a row driving from town to town, but it still was one of the coolest, uh, even though I knew it was coming, it still was one of the coolest moments when that uh, crowd in Columbia went crazy for Ric Flair coming back and then Eric came out and they really played off of what was going on. I thought that was, that was one of the cooler ones too. And then of course, Hulk turning heel uh, was another classic angle. And that's when they started throwing the things into the ring. And that was, that was super cool as well. That Flair was great. Fire me. I'm already fired. That was great. Yeah, yeah. You know, and like a lot of that stuff, you know, and even now I'm sure with Raw, a lot of that stuff, most of the people in the back, some of the people calling it don't even know. And that's the fun of wrestling. That's the fun of suspending your belief. You know, it's cool to know what's going on. It's cool to be smart. It's cool to get the observer and read it and know that Sting's in the box and stuff like that. But it's also cool when you don't. And that that's the sort of stuff that I don't want to wax nostalgic here, but that's the sort of stuff that brings you back to the old days when you never really knew what was going on. And, uh, you know, that's the fun of, that's the, the whole fun of it. So, you know, even though we live in a different world now where you, you, you pretty much have access to any kind of news you want, still, still kind of cool when you get surprised. I'll never forget when Eric Bischoff walked out on Raw. And, mm-hmm. uh, yep. and uh, I was actually watching Raw. I don't even know why at the time I was watching it. My wife happened to be in the room, and my wife never really watched wrestling. And I, I'll never forget, I turned to my wife and I said, hell just froze over in the biggest way I've ever seen. And uh, that's fun. Or when Goldust came out, because I knew Goldust is Dustin Rhodes, this uh, southern, you know, guy, you know, with the bleach blonde hair and the, with the cowboy boots. And my wife was watching. God, my wife watched more wrestling than I remember. And uh, and we couldn't believe that uh, that uh, Dustin had uh, was coming out with, you know, 
that, that long hair wig and the, the makeup and all that, you know. So those are the fun times, and I still cherish stuff like that, you know. That's why I watch The Undertaker Brock Bats. What's going to happen? You know, you, know I, you can't tell on this one. I don't think if anybody told you they knew what was going to happen, they were wrong. And they were probably disappointed, but they did what they, what, what they thought was best, and uh, it, was a cool, it was a cool visual of that match, especially when, uh, when Brock came, uh, got, to his, uh, got up and laughed, and then Undertaker did his, uh, his Undertaker up and laughed back at him, and they started hitting each other. I thought that was one of the coolest spots I've seen in wrestling in probably 10 years. Did you, you like know which one finish? I'm talking uh, wasn't a big fan. Of the, wasn't a big fan of the finish, and I'll tell you why. I wasn't a big fan of the finish. Charles Robinson stopped it. I know that this. We live in a different society where people tap out and they end things real quick, and maybe that's what went into it. But I thought if they would have at least had him raise Brock's hand one time, because he because he gave him the finger, and you see so many times in wrestling, you know, you you look like the guy looks like he's put to sleep, and then he hulks up for lack of a better term, and so. I just thought it, I thought they called it too quickly, and I was frankly I was confused for like a split second as to what you know happened. So I think uh, you know I think in the moment if they would have just sold a little bit more that Brock was passed out before they rang the bell, I think it would have been way more effective. But um, you know who's who am I to second guess those guys? Those guys have a multi-million, almost a billion-dollar company. Um, you know on the stock market, living in mansions, flying in jets. <laughs> You know, I may not agree with like everything that they put out there, but who am I to question it? You know, you know when you're successful when you're successful for five years, ten years, it could be a run. When you're successful for since 1984, with really not never that much of a down period. They've had a couple of down periods. Uh, the biggest one being when WCW got hot. But you know, they, they you know when you're hot for that long and you you know you, you have a company that people invest in their hard-earned savings and and it's worth almost a billion dollars. You can't question the little things that they do. Like I said, you may not like it. You may think it's dumb. You know, the the, the Dolph Ziggler angle with with uh, Lana and Summer Rae, I saw people on the Internet that were trashing the angle, and I, I looked at, I saw a clip on Twitter of, of, uh, of, of what they did. But, you know, is it my cup of tea? Nah. But, you know, how do you question so many years of success? That is true, and going back to the Lesnar match, when they did sat, uh, sit up and look at each other, they had me there. I liked that visual, and then the finish happened, and then they lost me. I'm like, oh, you had me, and then you lost me. Yeah, I think, I think sometimes you try to get too tricky, and, you know, you get too tricky, and sometimes you lose. I, I wasn't a huge fan. I loved the match. I thought the match was fantastic. I loved that spot. I, like I said, best spot in 10 years. Uh, maybe the best spot of all time in, in, the, in, in, in context, but... Uh, Eh, finish. I, I, I would, I'd be lying if I said I was in a little, uh, you know, I, I didn't kind of shake my head a little bit. But again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but who am I to question that machine up there? You know, if they could get a third one out of it, which they're going to, then, you know, then that's the name of the game. Yeah, it's true. Obviously, I guess it's leading towards uh, WrestleMania 32 in Dallas where they'll have the rubber match. I'm, I'm guessing. Could be sooner, but that would be my guess. No, I would think so. And, I mean, it was a fantastic match. And, you know, it's, it was nice to see Undertaker be able to go again at that level. Uh, fabulous uh, uh, athlete and fabulous legend in the business. Um, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. I didn't love the finish. But, you know what, the match more than made up for it. And, you know, at least they didn't do a DQ or a countout or something like that. So I'll take, I'll, I'll take a, 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 a convoluted finish over a non-finish any day.
very, very true. Now, one big question I have for you, and we like to, you know, ask this to, to all the guests because we're very curious. I mean, obviously you had a long run in the business, the voice of WCW for, you know, for about six or seven years there. You had a, a nice run. But what would you say would be your, quote, unquote, legacy on the business? What would you your stamp be on the business? I honestly think that my stamp, and most a lot of people don't know this, and that's why I sort of dig – doing these podcasts and, and being able to tell my story as, as, as little as it is compared to a lot of other guys. Um, you know, I think my stamp in this is that even if you're not a wrestler, even if you're not an athlete, if you love this business and you work your butt off to the bone to do anything and everything you have to do for no money, little money, lose money, uh, that eventually you could, you can make it quote unquote. And, I think I'm proof of that because I have I have a, 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 about as little as athletic ability as a person could have. I'm five foot six. Uh, you know, uh, I didn't know I had a voice. I knew I could talk on a microphone. I didn't know I had a voice. Uh, I kind of I did the little thing I knew how to do, which was talk on a microphone to an audience, and and I was able to make that into a a pretty successful looking back career, and uh, you know, sometimes successful part time gig after that. So. Um, I would just tell anybody to, you know, beware of scammers. Don't let people take advantage of you. But if you see somebody who has a history in this business, who has some success in this business, and you want to get in this business, work your butt off. It's not guaranteed. But, you know, I'm living proof that you could, you could make it in a pretty decent way. And uh, I guess if, that, if anything were my stamp, that and being the first thing you hear when they, when they play a Stink video in WWE. <laughs> <laughs> This is thing. That is great. And uh, where can we find you? Like, what are you doing nowadays? And and what are your plugs? Where can we find you on the internet? Um, on uh, Facebook, I have a page at WCW David Penzer, all one word. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm trying to get some Twitter followers. I got on Twitter way late. I've only been on for a couple about a month. And uh, so I got I got I got a couple hundred, but I'm trying to like, maybe get a thousand. So. Uh, I feel bad just like tweeting out for 100, 200 people, but uh, I'm uh, just my name, David Penzer, all one word, all lower caps at David Penzer on Twitter. So, uh, like I tell people, come on, uh, you know, uh, follow me and uh, you know, come along for the ride. And the cool thing about Twitter is, if you don't like the ride, you just click unfollow, and it takes a second. And uh, and also, I do realty, and real, I'm a realtor, licensed realtor in the Tampa area, Tampa, St. Pete, uh, Clearwater. So if anybody out there knows somebody who's moving, wants to move, wants to, to sell a home, I mean, I, I, I know I'm playing to a vast market, but you never know who might be out there. So if, any, uh, if anybody knows anybody in this area that has any interest in selling, buying, renting, um, they could hit me up on Twitter and, uh, and, and message me or message me on Facebook, and I'm happy to, to work my butt off for their family slash friends slash relatives anybody <laughs>